Hey, everybody, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for another episode of Systematic Theology. I'm Pastor Brian, joined in the studio again by Pastor Ross. Ross, last time in topic one of our SysTheo series, we talked about God's revelation. And today, we're going to talk about God's nature. And we have a lot of ground to cover today as we talk about who God is and what he's like. Right. There, there's so much that we could say, but we're trying to keep it to the highlights and encouraging you as you listen in to you know, do some of the reading that we've, that we've recommended. Or There's a lot of great resources, even on the Pursue God library, that, that touch on, expand on some of these things. But you know, the starting point here is simply that God is. The Bible never tries to prove that God exists. It just assumes it from the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, it says. And so, boom, there, there's God. He's just there. And as you go forth through the Bible, God reveals himself to be not just existent, but he's a personal being, he's a relational being, he wants to know us, and, and he's unique from any other being that exists in the universe. So um, that's our starting point, but building on that then, there's a lot we can talk about to explore the attributes or the qualities of God, or we might call the character of God. What is his nature? What is God really fully like? Yeah, before we get to that, Ross, I guess, what would you say to someone who's listening to this podcast who doesn't start with that assumption? Maybe, maybe they would say, I, I, don't, I don't know if I believe that that would be axiomatic. That's the kind mm-hmm. of a math word. In, in math, you have certain axioms. They're self-evident truths. You don't even try to prove them because you can't really prove them. You have to, with any system of, of study whether it's God or math, you have to start with some basic building blocks, otherwise you can't build anything. Right, exactly. And the thing is, with the nature of God, the existence of God, rather than, you know, there's, there's been throughout history, a number of um, people have put forth different lines of proof or evidence of the nature of God. There's, some of them are pretty compelling. Um, none of them are absolute proof, the question, what constitutes absolute proof? You know, what do I have to see that, that I'd be convinced? There's a personal moral choice develop, uh, element to it as well. But there's a lot of great arguments that have been put forward throughout history. And some of them you could find in our library talking about the existence and nature of God. Um, but the Bible doesn't make any of those arguments. Um, people have been convinced by them. Others have not been convinced by them. And part of that is the inclination of, you know, whether you want to be convinced or not, in my opinion. Well, and part of that also is just the, the Holy Spirit giving you the ability to receive God's revelation, right? Like we said last in the last topic is God reveals himself um, in general revelation and then in special revelation through his word, through the Bible. And then, of course, he ultimately revealed himself specifically through Jesus. But if, you're, if your heart isn't open to it, then you won't receive it. And I guess that's the, I guess that would be my challenge to the person who is maybe an agnostic or an atheist. I would say, look, listen to this. Open, open up the Bible, read it. And at the end of the day... Um, your ability to really understand who God is or to receive this, or to, I guess to believe it, to, mm-hmm. to open your heart to receive it, is not fully even up to you. Part of that is the Holy Spirit working in you, convicting you, and convincing you. So I would say to the atheist or the agnostic, I would say, uh, keep listening, 
and maybe God would do a work and open your spiritual eyes because it's not just about information and your ability to process it with your brain. There's also a spiritual element to this, I think, that we all need to recognize. Yeah, that's a great point. Good, good, good point to make at the very beginning of this conversation. All right, and so let's start then with uh, just kind of the broadest, let's zoom out as far as we can. Let's talk, Ross, about the imminence of God and the transcendence of God. Yeah, those are two big words that just describe these really two um, huge aspects of God in his relationship to his creation. So by imminence, we're talking about a God who is near to us, who's present, and by transcendence, we're talking about the quality that he's far above us at the level of our being, that, that he's just beyond us, in a sense, in his infinitude. So God is imminent, he's near us. Now, he's not He's distinct from his creation, so he's, we're not talking about a God who's a, we're not talking about a pantheist idea of God, where God is his creation, but he's present in his creation, he's involved in it, he sustains it, he directs it for his purposes, he enters relationship with people, he's, uh, Jesus, uh, the Bible says, is Emmanuel, God with us. So that's one side of it. The other side of it, they're, 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 these are not a contradiction. They're just two polar aspects of who God is. The other side of it is be, he's beyond our full experience. He's infinite. This transcendence that we can't fully grasp him with our finite minds. We only know what he's revealed about himself to us. So his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So he's both imminent and transcendent. Now that then leads to two different broad categories of his attributes. One, and we're going to cover this, be ready to take some notes at home, but one of one of them is called his incommunicable attributes, and the other one is, is are his communicable attributes. So Ross, let's start with the stuff that is incommunicable. The, the, these, these are the attributes of God that are unique to him, cannot be communicated to us, they're not shared with us. You know, the Bible says that we're made, that human beings are made in God's image, and we'll get into that later on in our series when we talk about humanity. But there, God is yet transcendent from us. He's completely distinct from us. He's, he's other than us. And part of that is revealed then in his incommunicable attributes. Let's talk about some of those. Yeah, that's a, that's a big, it's a word that's hard to say, but it, it does communicate something. So we think of, just to help our listeners, I think of a communicable disease. It's a disease that can be shared. Right, so cancer is not a communicable disease, but COVID is. So what, what are the attributes of God that can be shared, that, or that can't, in this case, that cannot be shared? So this is, again, a reflection of his transcendence, as you said. And there's a number of things, and I, you know, I just pinpointed a few of them, but there, there's more that I could have said. But, but if you think about the things that you can, you can say about God, but you can't say about human beings, one is that God is infinite, that he doesn't have any limitations that at least not imposed by his character, he has, by, his, uh, by, his, um, by his being. His character says that he can't, he's limited in the sense that he can't be evil, he can't sin, he can't you know, be morally flawed, um, but he's not su- subject to any of the limitations that his creation is subject to. So God is infinite, we're not, we're finite. That's number one. Yeah, that's his infinitude, if you want another hard word to say. The second one is his independence, that God is not dependent on any other being for his existence, and yet we are. Totally. So in other words, so there's a lot of implications of this, that um, God has no origin. 
that God ex- that He created everything. Um, he was not created by anything or anyone. And so we, we use the, the term, sometimes we use the term God is self-existent, meaning that he carries the power of exi- his existence within his own being. And so there's no higher being than him. There's no one outside of himself that he owes anything to. That's where we get the idea of independence. Yeah, and also it means that he's not answerable to anyone outside of himself. Whereas we are, right? God will judge us. Yeah. We're not, we don't exist by ourselves. We're dependent on, on God for every breath we take, but we'll, we're also um, responsible to him. Mm-hmm. We'll have to answer to him someday. So we are dependent, and therefore in God's independence is one of his incommunicable attributes. So that's number two. Number three is his self sufficiency which kind of flows out of his mm-hmm. independence right yeah it's related to it it's because it's an implication of it in a sense because god is independent of any other being then he he doesn't have any needs he's not relying on anyone or anything else in the universe um you know this the, one of the uh, applications of this god doesn't need us and god did not need to create in order to be fulfilled mm-hmm. God was fulfilled completely in himself. He created as an act of his will to just chose to create for his own glory. Um, but it's not like God was going like, oh man, I wish I had, I, I just, I can't be fulfilled unless I have something that I make, you know. Um, because he's totally self-sufficient. He doesn't need um, our, honestly, this is kind of maybe strike people funny, but he doesn't need our worship. Mm. He deserves our worship, doesn't need our worship. Mm. He doesn't need our money. You know, he, it's proper, we'll talk about uh, in other places in Pursue God about the importance of our giving and our surrender to him that way, but he doesn't need it. He doesn't need anything and any help from us in any way. He's totally self-sufficient. Yeah, and I think this is a good spot to stop and make an observation. One of the reasons that it's important to go through this list and really try to understand God and wrap our mind around God is because it helps us to worship him, even though he doesn't need our worship, it helps us to worship him. So you might be listening to this saying, God sounds like a friend, a, a friend from high school who was, who was kind of arrogant or a jerk. Like he didn't, I know, a, I know a guy who didn't need anything. He was pretty self-sufficient. And I think it's important not to say that. This is just because you can't relate to this, these incommunicable attributes of God, I think it would be a mistake then to project on him maybe like character flaws that that would be present in a human being who seemed self-sufficient. We're not saying we're not saying that God doesn't need us and so therefore he's a jerk like that right. other guy that you know. Right. We're saying he doesn't need us because he's so far above us, he's so distinct from us. So when you think about how you have these interpersonal needs that and you're broken if you don't have them. God is God is so much bigger than that, and that should cause us to worship Him, not to despise Him. Right. Just the fact that there's no lack in Him. There's nothing lacking in Him. There's nothing. There's nothing. There's no, no deficit in God. It's a. It's an element of His perfection. Mm-hmm. And the difference is, is that you know the, the human being who feels that way becomes a jerk. Well, they're not correct. <laughs> right. Right. God is correct. God doesn't really need anybody. That guy really does. Yes. And he just didn't realize it. That's right. Oh, that's good. All right. Number four. His unchangeableness. The Bible depicts God as responding to different situations 
differently in his interactions with human beings, but God's being and perfections do not ever change. Explain that. What does that mean? Yeah, so what, what we're saying there is that, you know, you see God in his interactions with human beings, it looks like maybe he changes his mind, or maybe... So, so he sends Jonah to Nineveh. He said, Nineveh is going to be subject to my judgment. Jonah goes there unwillingly, but he preaches uh, repentance. The city repents, and so God relents. God doesn't send judgment. Well, did God change? Well, no, because, because his being, built into his being and his character, is this balance of mercy and justice. We'll talk about it in a minute. So he, he already had set up the conditions that if they, you know, um, repent, I will not judge them. But it looks like from the outside, the human perspective, like God changed his mind. He says, oh, well, I was going to do this now. No, I'm going to do that instead. But so it can, be, it can be tricky to navigate that in the Bible, but the point here is that, that who he is, his, his nature, his character doesn't change, that he'll never stop being infinite, he'll never stop being independent, self-sufficient, like we've talked about, he'll never become more powerful than he is now, he'll never become more loving than he is now. So it's, it's both ways, he'll never get better, he'll never decline mm-hmm. than that you know uh, from now i find as i get older my powers are declining <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> to take more advil um but that's not true of god it's not like god's just like one day one thing is right and something else is wrong and then tomorrow it's going to be the other way around mm-hmm. so god's character doesn't change his promises don't change his purposes don't change and so that that means we can really trust god which i think is huge because you know t- in today's culture I feel so badly for young people. Everything is just shifting. Everything's fluid for, mm-hmm. you know, gender is fluid, which by the way, it's not. But our culture is saying it is. And there's so much that is that is not fixed in this world. And I think personally, that's part of the reason so many young people, I guess old people too, struggle with anxiety because you're like, I don't even know what what foundation I have anymore. And this is what's so awesome about our God is, he doesn't change. He's not like a uh, like a, a friend that you had again in high school who you never knew which one you were going to get on any given day, mm-hmm. right? God is just not like that. And because of that, we can have confidence when we go to his word and when we when we go through life that he's he's going to be the foundation that we need. Yeah, and there's so many implications of that for sure. I mean, in human relationships, you mentioned like, your fickle friend. I mean, even in a marriage, maybe a marriage has been going along for 40 years and suddenly one of them decides, oh, I'm not in love with you anymore. You know, uh, it looked permanent, but it really wasn't. Mm. Well, God is, God is not going to ever go like, oh, I just don't like you anymore. He, whatever he promised, he will fulfill. Mm-hmm. All right, I think we're on number five. Again, incommunicable attribute of God, his eternity. God is infinite with respect to time. How is that different from us as human beings? Well, we had a beginning, number one. Yeah. You know, we, there was a day that, or a time, even to talk about time is a little bit inaccurate, but there was a point in time where we did not exist, and then we did exist. Mm-hmm. And um, so you could say that human beings are eternal in one direction, mm-hmm. maybe, because we exist and then we'll continue to exist mm-hmm. after this life is over. But God, uh, God has never not existed. In fact, I don't believe that God even exists within the timeline of time, that, that, that somehow God, God is greater than time. I think God is independent of time. Mm. I think God created time. Genesis 1 shows he put the, the uh, bodies in the heavens mm-hmm. that mark time for us. Um, 
so he has no beginning, no ending. The Bible frequently says the one who was and is and is to come, just like every um, aspect of how we think about past, present, and future, God always was, always always is, always will be. And, and so his relationship with time as an eternal being, he's, he sees all of time, in a sense, as an eternal present tense, mm. I believe. That's how I would, would understand that. Well, you know, it's interesting. We, even, even humans' understanding of time and space has changed with right. Einstein and mm-hmm. relativity and all that stuff as we realized, oh, man, our concept of time is really relative to the Earth. It's relative to, to what's around us. And then, of course, uh, not to get into this too deeply, but, but Einstein recognized that there, wait, hold on, there's something else. And really, I think that's a helpful way to understand it is God is outside of not just this earth in mm-hmm. our gravitational mm-hmm. force in this earth, and but he's even outside all of the universe because he created the entire universe. So if you can somehow expand what Einstein recognized, and it was so revolutionary, if you if you now just say, now, it's hard for us to wrap our mind, and we can't wrap our mind mm-hmm. around this, is that God is, is beyond all of that. He's even outside of time because yeah. he created it. He created it, yeah. All right, number six, God's omnipresence which means that he is infinite with respect to space. Now, what in the world are we talking about here? Okay, so God's not limited. So infinite means no limitations, right? So God is not limited by physical space. That he, in other words, I'm sitting here on this stool. I'm not somewhere else. Um, I'm not in three places at once. Or what, I mean, I'm limited to the... I have size. I have spatial dimensions. You know, I'm five feet, ten inches tall, etc., but God is not limited to being in one place at one time. He's not limited to being any, but to, by spatial considerations at all. And so we believe that God is present in every point of space with his entire being. So it's not like part of God is over San Francisco and part of God is over Houston. Another part of God is over a different part of the world. But God is fully present in his entire being in every point of space. Now, what that means, the implication of that is he's not a physical being. Yeah, I was going to say, so some people, maybe we should have even started with this, because they, when, when you think about his imminence and his transcendence, how we started today, some people are even just having a hard time visualizing God. So let's, let's make this really clear. God is not, you're saying God does not have a physical body? Correct. God does not have a physical body. Um, there's so many passages of Scripture that uh, make that pretty clear, very clear. Jesus says um, in John 4, 24, God is spirit. Now, and we'll talk about that, because there's a, there's a communicable attribute of spirituality mm. that, um, that we share at some level with God, not the way God has it, but this is related to that. So if God is not a physical bo- body, does not have a physical body, that's really the only way that, that everything that the Bible says about him makes sense. And, and, uh, but that raises, of course, a great question. What about the parts of the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, that ascribe physical body parts to God, mm-hmm. like the eyes of God or the hand of God or the mouth of God or, or whatever? And so we have, to, we have to be able to have a good explanation of that. Which is? Well, we are, we're not talking about God as he is, but we're talking about um, using human experience, which is the only way that we know how to think about mm-hmm. things, it's the only frame of reference that we have, we're using human experience, or you could call it anthropomorphic language, mm-hmm. 
to describe aspects of what God is like. In other words, to say that God has eyes is a way of saying God has the ability to perceive. Mm -hmm. To say that God, ha that God has a mouth or speaks is saying God has the ability to communicate. But the reason that we, we understand that this to be um, metaphorical or analogical language is because the Bible also uses other metaphors of God that aren't human, as it talks about God as a as a um, flaming fire, a burning furnace. Right. It talks about God ha like we are sheltered under His wings. Mm -hmm. And so, where do you say, well, that's literal, and the other one is um, is is metaphorical? Right. Is God an eagle? No, it's right. not an eagle. No, or is He some kind of human with wings, like yeah. like some kind of Avenger or something like that? But, yeah. um, and so we say that there's enough in the Bible that's clear about God's spiritual nature to help us understand that these other ways of talking about God are metaphorical descriptions of um, characteristics of God, but they're not literal. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's his omnipresence that we kind of got into his, his, spirit, his spiritual nature as well. God is spirit, not body. And there's one more, and again, Ross, you mentioned that there are many more, but these are just seven that we're using, and, and maybe if people want to dig a little bit deeper, I encourage you to do that as you continue in your own study of this. But the, the final incommunicable attribute of God is his unity. What do, we, what do we say when we say that God is unity? Yeah, this one, it's um, an interesting idea, but it's important to maintain that... Um, every attribute of God applies fully to all of God. So it's not like God is sometimes or part of, partly loving and sometimes or partly um, holy or wrathful or, what, or righteous, um, but, but every aspect of his character is fully and completely integrated and consistent with every other one. And so that means his attributes are never contrary or contradictory to each other, never at odds with each other. So God's love is holy love. God's um, mercy is just mercy, or his justice is merciful justice, however you want to put it. And so we're saying God's not divided into parts. There's a loving part, and there's a, um, a, a just part, and so forth. Which, again, the reason this is incommunicable is because that's not how we exist. Right. We're, you know, human beings are all a mixed bag. Wouldn't it be nice if everyone's spouse had unity, if they were perfectly truthful and perfectly loving at the same time. Mm -hmm. But man, it's so hard to speak the truth in love right. perfectly every time. Right. So we aren't like this. We might have flashes, moments where we strike a really nice balance in our relationships and our lives, but this is we're not perfect, and so we can't claim this about ourselves. Exactly. All right, so those were the incommunicable attributes of God. Again, we can't catch those from God, even though I think we can reflect in part some of those things, but we certainly we certainly do not have those qualities in us as human beings. The next list would be categorized as God's communicable attributes, and these are the aspect of, aspects of God's nature that can be and are reflected in human beings, although not quite as perfectly as he reflects these right. things. Right, all of them will be reflected in a incomplete or finite um, manner, for sure. All right, and the first one, then, is spirituality. So we already mentioned that God is spirit, and so how, how is this communicable for human beings? Well, because human beings, while we are embodied, we are not just physical bodies, we have a spirit, and we have a spiritual nature. 
And so really the gist of this idea is that, is that we can interact with God at the level of our spirit. Um, and so, you know, our spirit responds to his spirit. His Holy Spirit communicates with our spirit. And so because we have a spiritual nature that reflects in some way the spiritual nature of God. Yeah, so that's our spirituality related to God's spirituality. The second one is knowledge. Humans have a limited capacity to know the truth. Now, God God is omniscient. We could have put that in our previous list. Right. We're not all-knowing. He is all-knowing. He knows perfectly, but we still can have knowledge, and part of that is a function of how God made us in, right. in His image. Right. So we have knowledge. His knowledge is perfect. Ours is limited. So His knowledge is infinite. That means He can know the past and the present and the future all at once, like we were saying with His eternity. God can know things that are visible and invisible that we can't know because they're spiritual or because they're too complicated for us, like like um, the paradoxes of quantic, quantum mechanics and so forth. He can know things that are actual and things that are possible because his knowledge has, is not limited um, in any way. It's infinite. All right, the third one is power. Now, now God is omnipotent, all-powerful. We're not, but yet this is a, an attribute that is at least in some sense communicated to us. Because right, we have some ability to, to make some things happen on a very limited basis, right? Mm-hmm. But his power is infinite. Now, the question then, people have always raised in the past, well, can God make a rock that's too big for him to lift? <laughs> right. Well, it's a paradox. Well, no. So we, we qualify this to say, well, God can't just do anything. He can't do anything that's illogical, mm-hmm. or he can't do anything that's contrary to his character. So it's impossible, the Bible says, for God to lie. Right. And so we say that God is able uh, uh, to do anything that he chooses to do. And his choice then would be dictated by his perfection and his character and so forth. So that's power. Number four, wisdom. God's this communicable attribute of wisdom. God is wise, and we, have, we can have some measure of wisdom as well. Right. And God's wisdom, he always chooses the best path, the best approach. And I would just, I would just say that, you know, I think as we're going through the communicable attributes, I think probably our, our listeners can relate to these better, mm-hmm. probably because we can possess them and we can know kind of like what wisdom is, what power, what knowledge is. And these are the, the incommunicable attributes are kind of like blow our minds and go like, whoa, God, he's the transcendence of God again. And we're going, man, I don't even understand what eternity means, um, but wow. And these ones are more like, oh, I can really relate. And these are the ones that we go, oh, um, I can not only worship God as this transcendent God, but, oh, God is involved in my life. I can, I can learn his wisdom. Mm. He, his power can apply to me in, in the f- obstacles that I face. His knowledge is shared with me so I can make the right decisions. And so for, so, for some of us, the, the, it's the communicable attributes that help us draw near to God. It's the incommunicable attributes that like blow us away with how amazing mm. God is. Right, which a little bit relates to what we started with, imminence and transcendence. Exactly. Right? His transcendence yeah. then is reflected in, in part in his incommunicable mm-hmm. attributes, but his imminence, how he's near to us, 
is reflected in some measure, at least, with these communicable attributes. Mm-hmm. Ross, I have a question before we move on to the next one. What's the difference? Some, pe- some people might be listening saying, wait a second, I thought we already talked about knowledge. Now mm-hmm. we're talking about wisdom. What's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Yeah, wisdom, I think you could say, is the application of knowledge. Wisdom is knowing what to do in a situation, or it's choosing the best purpose, the best path, the best means to achieve the purpose. So it's dependent on knowledge, or it's related to knowledge. But I mean, on, just in human terms, of course, we know lots of people who know a lot, but you know, can't make a good decision. <laughs> right. So. That's good. All right, next one. I think this is five. I, I'm losing count. Yeah, me too. Truthfulness, right? As the true God, God himself epitomizes truth. Yeah, so God, God is truth. So here's the thing. Um, it's God, the way God views reality is the way reality is. So there's no like misperception on his part. There's no like, I can only see reality in limited form. So I don't have the whole truth. And so I can't embody the truth or epitomize the truth. But, but God's perception defines reality and is the, really the final arbiter of what is really true and what isn't true. And so God can't lie. God can't deceive. He can't be deceived. Um, and so he's really the baseline of truth. And that means he's faithful because faithfulness really is truthfulness applied to promises, right? right. He's, oh, every promise that God ever made in the Bible, he, his, because he's a truthful God, he's going to be faithful to those promises. Which again, when we think about applying this, then as we as we as we say, okay, then how how can I how can I live out this attribute more in my life? How can I reflect this truthfulness more in my world? And, and one of the ways I would say, especially to men listening to this, to dads and to and to fathers fathers and mm-hmm. husbands listening to this is is be faithful, be faithful to your spouse, be faithful mm-hmm. to your kids when you say you're going to do something. Do it because that's how God operates. Yeah, that's a great point because I think in our culture, um, going back historically, we tend to think of truth as an abstract thing that it's a it's a property of ideas or statements. But biblically, truth is a property of persons. So God is truth; He's the one true God. And, and so, so am I a am I a person who does truth, not just who says truth? or knows truth, but who does truth. And that's where faithfulness comes in. Am I living truthfully with other people around me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. The next one is goodness. That What does it mean that God is good? I think that's a word we use a lot in our culture, but but it means something, I think, bigger here. Yeah, so so this is an interesting... God, again, God's the kind of the standard of goodness. Jesus says nobody's good but God, um, ultimately... Um, the definition that I've seen is that God is, everything that he is and he does is worthy of approval. Well, th- the question is, whose approval? Well, <laughs> right. he's the ultimate, so his own approval, I guess. But, but even from our standards, even from our human standards, we look at God and say, oh, yeah, that was right, that was good. Um, everything that he has done and is is good, and, and so he acts toward his creation only in ways that are good. Now, that's the challenge of that is when we see tr- uh, difficulties, tragedies, natural disasters, stuff like that happen in the world, we say, well, is God being good? You know, maybe God, it seems like God's being bad, you know. But we, ha- we hang on to this. It's asserted in the Bible. And so this gives us a filter that helps us to understand 
when difficult or bad things happen, that there must be some bigger picture. There must be some larger reality that maybe we don't see yet or haven't experienced yet. Mm-hmm. The next one probably should have been the first one, really, because this is the probably the broadest definition of God, and the attribute is love. God, First John 4, 8 says that God is love, and this is, thank God, this is one of his communicable attributes. Right, because, you know, we can express love. We can learn from Jesus how to love. God's love, uh, he, he eternally gives himself to others. Um, he uh, puts others... Self-sacrificial love is the, is the epitome here. And we see it in the, in the Trinity, in the relationship of the Trinity. We'll talk about the Trinity in a minute, but in the way the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father and the Holy Spirit, how they relate to each other is always... Um, is always characterized by love, and so you know we can learn from that example and put that into practice at again at a finite level. Yeah, and so love love is the opposite of of acting in self interest. If you want to learn more about a biblical understanding of love, read First Corinthians thirteen. So let's move on to the next mm-hmm. one though, and this one is holiness. Now I would say, okay, wait, why why is holiness on the communicable list and not the incommunicable list. Well, it's really, it really d- belongs on both lists, yeah. depending, depending how exactly it's defined. Mm-hmm. Because the root idea of holiness in the Old Testament language is the idea of separation. Um, and so on one level, that the communicable level, God is separate from sin. He's never going to partake of any sin or evil, and there's no... Uh, there's nothing that taints his character, and he calls us very clearly in the Bible to be holy like he is holy. Mm-hmm. In other words, for us to separate from more increasingly from sin and wickedness in our own lives. So that's the communicable side. The incommunicable side is the, the idea that God is separate. He's separate from his creation. And that just goes back to transcendence. That's just another way of talking about transcendence. He's absolutely separate from us in the level of his being or of in his in his perfection. And so that part I get really is incommunicable. Yeah, I love in the picture of heaven in Revelation, the the angels and the creatures and everyone around the throne, um, they say holy, holy, holy. It's almost like they can't they're speechless. They can hardly say anything else. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That you the the thing we'll say when we meet God someday is just if, if anything, it's going to be, you're holy. Yeah. You're different. You're yeah. separate. You're, you're transcendent. Way up there. Yeah. Way up there. And, and yet, and, and yet yeah. there's a sense in which God, like, like you said, Jesus said, be holy as God is holy. So he right. calls us to be separate from the world and to live this, this next thing out, this next attribute yeah. out, which is righteousness. What is, yeah. what is, it's kind of a churchy word. What is righteousness yeah. biblically? It, it, biblically, it means... You could you could use the word justice that would be fair to use, but um, it always it means basically always uh, measuring up to the standard of what's right. Um, you know, I don't know what what word you would pick in popular culture uh, to do that, but to be right, to be in the right. Mm. Um, you know, so it's not just again I'm right about ideas, but that I'm in right relationship with the people around me and with God, and so. Um, it means I'm always going to do what's right. It means that I'm, for example, there's a lot in the Bible about acting for merchants to not cheat people by using f- false weights. Mm-hmm. Or like I got two sets of weights, one for you and one for this other guy. Um, but 
so, so there's a sense of acting justly or doing what's fair. Um, all those ideas are wrapped up together in what it means for us to act righteously, or really ultimately for God to act righteously too, because he'll never do what's wrong. He'll never, he'll never call evil good. Um, he'll, he'll never be fair, unfair or unjust in all of his dealings. And in a sense, that then relates to this last one on our list. Again, there could be many more, but the last one we have is God's wrath. And God's wrath is something that is related to the lack of righteousness when someone doesn't do what's right or what's just. That's where wrath comes in. Yeah, wrath is a tough one because the only thing we have to understand it is human anger. And so we think, well, does this mean like... um, there's a T-shirt that went around for a while. It says Jesus is coming back again, and boy is he mad! You know, <laughs> it's like you know, and there's, there's a sense in which that's true, but it's not in the sense that you know, in human sense, that you just get ticked off or you boil over and you're just going to like do something mean or, or or destructive to people because you can't control yourself. But God's wrath is His settled opposition towards sin. It's God's heart animosity towards sin. And that's a good thing. Mm. You know, if you had a judge who didn't care, and your case went before the judge, and all he cared about was like, who's going to pay him the bigger bribe? He didn't care about what was right or wrong. Then you'd say, well, there's a problem here, right? And so for God to not care about evil, that would be a problem. And so it's really a virtue to to hate evil and, and sin. Which is why it's so important for there for it to be founded on God and His Word and His truth and what He's revealed, like we talked about last week. Because if you don't know what is right and what is good and what is just and what is fair, then you can't properly apply wrath. You know, I think about this in our culture. You'll see people, you know, you know, standing in front of the Supreme Court and they're getting all fired up and they're picketing things. It's so interesting, Ross, that. You've got two completely different sides trying to claim, trying to have wrath against two completely opposite things. So how do you know what's even right, what's even true? Right, that's great. Well, we know because God is the final arbiter of that. Whatever God says is right is right. Right. And and so whatever you know, whatever God is um, has defined, that's the only way we really know. Otherwise, we're just left to ourselves. And like you said, it's an it's in. Uh, it's an impasse between different perspectives of right and wrong. And whoever ends up with the most power or has the right voices on the Supreme Court or can make the most votes in Congress ends up being, quote, right, mm-hmm. you know, which ultimately um, you know, puts us in a, I mean, right, right and wrong are changing all the time, mm-hmm. depending on who's in power. So we really need God as the final standard of all of these things. We're thankful that God's attributes, that God is just in himself, that God is not answerable to some external um, standard of justice. There's some, not some law out there that God says, oh, here, let me check. Let me check the law, and, uh, and I'll do the right thing. But no, that he, it's within himself. It's within his character, and his character then is what defines it for, for everyone else. Well, and that, and that, again, it's communicable, which means that as we're, the more connected we are to God, the more we're led by the Spirit, then the more we're going to be aligned with, with God's heart on these things. And almost like how you mm-hmm. said, we don't, we don't have to say, well, let me check. Now, of course, we always check with God's Word, right. but there are plenty of things where we're just like, we know what the right response is. We know when we should stand in opposition to something, because because not just because of God's Word, but because God's Spirit is in us, moving us to do the right thing. And even that would include to be 
angry when we need to be angry. Right. And the thing is that this kind of brings us full circle back to the unity of God again, because when God's wrath, it's an expression of his holiness and of his righteousness, but it's never at odds with his love, his mercy, his compassion, his patience, his kindness. Those are uh, so it never so we have a hard time integrating. We might be we might be wrathful in the right way about the right thing, but we have a hard time integrating that at the same time with mercy and love and care and concern for other people. So that's where, you know, we really we really do need God's help to to share in fully, more fully in his attributes here. All right, so we've talked about God's transcendence and his imminence. We've talked about his incommunicable attributes and his communicable attributes. And there's one more thing. I know this has been a long episode, but we're trying to, we're trying to understand God in less than an hour here, which we'll never be able to do. But the last category then is this idea of his tri- that God is triune, this mm-hmm. concept of Trinity. Now, Ross, this word, Trinity, people aren't going to be able to find in their Bibles, but yet it is so clearly the only way, I think, biblically to understand God's nature. Yeah, if you, if you drop any of the core, there's three core concepts we'll, we'll mention. If you drop any of them, you end up dropping something that's central in Scripture, and you end up with an aberrant view of God. It's really the only way to connect the dots with everything God has told us about himself. So here are the three things. Okay, this is, and I, I personally love, I love the doctrine of the Trinity. I love, I love that we can sort of break it down into these three, um, three ideas, these three concepts. The first one is that that God is one. There's only one God, mm-hmm. right? Very, and we're talking about His. Being and we have to pay attention right, to the to, language we use here. We're talking right. about his being. Is God is one? What right. does it mean that God is one in being? Well, there's only one God. Period. And um, you know, and not the idols are not God. There's no other concept of God that's real. Um, this is something that you know heretic heresies have arisen around the nature of God, uh, right and left for centuries. But this is the one that's been most heresy free because it's pretty clear and very obvious in Scripture that really there's just only one being that we could call God. All right, that's the first thing. The second thing, and again, this seems like a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction, it's a paradox, which is different. A paradox Mm -hmm. means there are two things that are true that seem to contradict each other, but they don't. So God is one is the first thing. And the second thing is that God is three persons. Mm -hmm. So God is one in being, and then the second thing is that God is three in persons. What do we mean when we use the word persons? Yeah, that's a tricky thing. I, I would say, I'm, I'm not sure this is totally perfectly um, helpful, but it does help me some to say that there are three distinct centers of consciousness within the one God. And, w- so, and the Bible portrays the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as distinct, that it's not like... It's not like the one God is sometimes the Father and sometimes the Son and sometimes the Spirit, but you see, you know, all three of them together in the, um, you know, in the baptism of Jesus. So the three are all um, are all portrayed as distinct, but there's only one God. And so here's how, you know, I kind of try to think of it that this is that I am a unipersonal being, as are you, and there's one person within one being. 
And that's the only kind of beings that I've ever encountered in personally in my day-to-day experience laid eyes on is our unipersonal beings. But that doesn't mean a tri-personal being is impossible. It's just that, you know, there's billions of unipersonal beings on the planet and Mm -hmm. I interact with them every day. You've never met anyone like God before. I've never met anyone like God, exactly. A tri-personal being, but it doesn't mean that it's irrational and it doesn't mean that it's impossible or Mm -hmm. that it's a contradiction. So there's some, before we get to the third thing about this, there, there are some, there's a distinction, we need to talk about the distinction between person and being, because again, I think when I say, I, I like to define the Trinity in four words, one being, three persons. Right. So one being, three persons. Right. So what's the difference between persons and beings? Well, well p- person, it's important to understand that, that the persons of God are distinct. And exactly. again, it's so hard. I almost mm-hmm. hesitate to say that, but it's, it's, you can say that. The you persons that. of God are yeah. distinct. What we mean is that the Father is not the Son. The person of the Father is distinct from the person of the right. Son, even though there's no distinction in being. in being. At the level of their being, which is their essential yeah. um, beingness. I don't know. There's not another really great word <laughs> right. to say, yeah. a synonym there. Essence. Yeah, yeah. in their essence, yeah. yeah. So, so God, the Father, the person of the Father is distinct from the person of the Son. The person of the Son is distinct from the person of the Holy Spirit, etc. So an example of that is the Father did not go to the cross. We can't say that God the Father went to the cross because that's not the person who went to the cross. God the Son went to the cross. We can't say that, that God the Father indwells us as believers, actually the Bible says the Holy Spirit, God doesn't dwell us, but by the person of the Holy Spirit. But not the Father, right. right. Yeah, that's a great point. So there's distinction between persons, but there's no distinction when it comes to their being, their being which is so hard being. for us to understand, Right. but there's a lot of other things we don't understand right. that we still and, end and, up you know, the, the thing is, I don't have to understand it. I do have to know how to defend it biblically and support it mm-hmm. and be able to articulate why the why we why we believe this this way the bible is clear about the doctrine it's not it's not easy to understand because god is infinite i'm finite you know and i'm okay with that you know if if i could understand god he wouldn't be big enough to be god Mm -hmm. that's good all right here's the third thing okay so number one there's one god in being number two god exists in three persons and then number three each person is fully god right so this is important, I think, for Christians to understand. I, I'm, I'm glad that there's a third part to this, because mm-hmm. a lot of people would, would say, oh, okay, so I get it, so, so God the Holy Spirit is just, like the, is just like the Spirit of God. It's not God, it's, it's God's like the Spirit. the presence of God yeah. or something like that. Or yeah. people might say, oh, I, I get it, Jesus is like JV God. He's, yeah. not the real, he's not the real God, but he's right. like JV God. He's like a godlet or a small g God or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and, and no, the biblical understanding is that... Each person is fully God, 100% God by his own person, right? Mm-hmm. Explain that, Ross. Well, um, the Bible just tell, the Bible makes it clear. It, it describes you know, deity to all three of the persons. And so one God, three persons, each one of them has to be fully God or the, or the thing doesn't work biblically. Um, and so and here's the, so it's, there is a tension for sure. And different groups historically have tried to resolve the tension by elevating one of these three, uh, or dropping out one of these three concepts. 
And so if you drop out the one we're talking about now, that each person of the Trinity is fully God, you, a lot of groups have done that. You end up the Jehovah Witnesses, but don't believe that Jesus is fully God. Well, they've resolved the tension, but, they've, but they have not been faithful to what the Bible teaches mm. or what God has revealed about himself mm. in the Bible. You know, the, um, the, the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, resolve the tension by saying, well, there's actually three distinct beings mm. who are all God. And so they get two out of the three right, right? Mm. But they deny the one God um, thing that's so clear in the Bible. They've resolved the tension, and that makes it feel like, oh, we, you know, emotionally or, or intellectually um, palatable, but they haven't been faithful to everything the Bible reveals about God. So, Ross, can you be, last question, can you be a Christian and not believe in the concept, the idea of the Trinity? Because I'm, I'm sure there are some people listening to this struggling to wrap their mind around this, and there maybe the temptation is just to say, whatever, I'm just going to push that aside. I'm not going to... How would you answer that question? Well, it's really, it's really important truth, because everything God has revealed about himself is really important, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of implications to it. I, can, I would say a person can be a Christian without understanding the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. Well, I, nobody understands it fully. Right. But I don't think a person can really be genuinely be a Christian if they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. So, there's a, there's, so I'm going to make allowance for someone who may not r- really get it or may have not been taught it or fully understand it, but you can't deny it and be a Christian because this is so fundamental the nature of God is fundamental to what it means to, to be one of God's people. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and that is just the tip of the iceberg. So I just want to encourage you, if you want to talk about this with your family, your small group, or your mentor, check out, this is topic number two in our Systematic Theology series at Pursue God. So go to pursuegod.org forward slash sistheo. And again, encourage you to make sure to do the assignment with these more intensive discipleship um, topics at Pursue God. We have a little homework assignment every week, and so uh, it's always coming from um, the book Christian Beliefs. You can get a link to that. The assignment for today, if you want to go a little bit deeper, is to read chapters two and three in that book. Encourage you to do it and talk about it, and then we'll join and then join us next Tuesday as we continue on in the series.